0: Good morning once again. As always, it is a privilege to be able to stand before you and to speak to you from God's Holy Word concerning the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. Well, as has been mentioned a few times already today, today is what we call our Reaffirmation Day. Today marks 14 years that Emmanuel Baptist Church has been in existence. And the very existence of this church ought to be a great encouragement to you as a believer. You see, the existence of a Bible-believing church composed of saints who have been redeemed and called together to form a local body of believers is proof positive that the redemptive plan of God that He made prior to the very foundation of the world is being realized. Christ is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against Him. Further, the understanding that God has providentially cared for this congregation for 14 years is a great encouragement and reminder of the covenant faithfulness of our good God. Amen. And and those of you who have been here from the beginning know how God has providentially sustained us in the midst of many, many trials. I was going through our records this week and it shows that we have lost 19 members to death in the 14 years that we've been a church. Brothers and sisters, sisters, that's a lot for any congregation to endure over the course of 14 years. I know of a sister church that's been in existence for 20 years, and I think they've had three deaths. So we have been, in a very particular way, hit by that trial of death. Further, six of those that were lost were officers in this church. Three elders and three deacons. And I wish that you younger men in this church that have come in the past couple of years could have known those many godly men that served this church so well. You young men have very, very big shoes to fill. But God has been faithful to us and He has sustained us. And so it is fitting that on this reaffirmation day, that we thank God for what He has done for us in the past. It's fitting that we should do that. We should give thanks for what God has done. But we must also realize that we cannot live in the past. We have to understand that the church is a living entity. The church is made up of living stones, not brick, wood, and metal, but believers who have been redeemed by God. Further, because the church is a living entity, it is not static, but rather it is dynamic. And what I mean by dynamic is that the church is always changing. And so, Emmanuel Baptist Church is not the church that was constituted in 2008. Emmanuel Baptist Church is you. The church that is reaffirming our commitments on September twenty fifth, two 2022. That is who we are. And so the question is this, who are we? You see, like most things in life, things usually don't go off course in a day. Usually people get off course gradually or incrementally. Now, This is true in the life of a believer with regards to to backsliding into sin. Uh, This is true uh, for most marriages that end in divorce. And this is true in the church. Usually a church doesn't go from being a healthy church to an unhealthy church In a short period. It is something that happens gradually as a result of losing sight of her identity and her purpose. And so it is necessary that as a church we take regular inventory to see if who we say we are is truly who we are. In other words, we need to make sure that our commitments are more than simply something written in a document or something that we affirm with our mouth. Are we truly committed to our core principles as a church? And are we truly committed at the level of our hearts and our minds and our our actions? Because it is at that level that truly determines who we are. You see, the church must be reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. So who are we? Well, in Article 2 of our Constitution it reads as follows. We identify ourselves as an evangelical, reformed, and Baptist church. Well, that statement in Article 2 lays out four key words that describe who we say we are. Those four words are evangelical, reformed, Baptist, and church. And so I want to quickly touch on each of these words that we say we identify as And allow you to do some inventory to see if this is an accurate representation of who we are. The first word, evangelical. We are a church that understands that the gospel is the appointed means by which God has chosen to save his people. We believe in the truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We believe that the only way a person can be saved is through faith in the person and work of Christ. And that faith comes by hearing the message concerning God's Son, who He is and what He has done for sinners. We say we are an evangelical church. We say we are a gospel-centered church. And so the question is, is that your commitment, EBC? Is that true of us? Is that true of our pulpit? Is it true of our Bible studies, both adult and children? Is it true of all of our ministries? Is it true in your own life? Do you preach the gospel to yourselves on a regular basis? We believe that the gospel is the means by which sinners are saved, but we also believe that the gospel is the means by which saints are sanctified and edified. So is this true of us? Are we committed to the gospel? Second word, Reformed. We are a church that believes that the truth of God's Word has been best summarized in the body of doctrine known as Reformed theology. We hold to the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. But one of those solas is on our sign outside, in fact. So we believe in Scripture alone as the only sufficient, certain, and infallible source of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. We believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we believe that all things are to be done to the glory of God alone and that He alone is the only proper object of our worship. We believe in the doctrines of grace because we believe these doctrines are an accurate summary of what the Bible teaches concerning salvation. (coughs) We believe in the depravity of man and his moral inability to do anything to save himself or even to prepare himself thereinto. We believe in God's election being unconditional. That is, it is not based on the sinner, but based solely on the good pleasure of a gracious God. We believe in a particular atonement. That Christ came to save the very people that the Father gave Him before the foundation of the world. And that He did more than make atonement possible, but rather that He actually made atonement once and for all for His people. We believe in the grace of God that grants new life to dead sinners, making them able and willing to believe and follow Christ. And we believe that the good work that God has started, He will bring to completion. And that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We believe that these doctrines are to humble the pride of man and to give all glory to the grace of God and therefore cause us to be loving and kind and to extend to others the same grace that we have also received. EBC, is that who you are? Have these doctrines so gripped your heart and made you humble and loving and have these doctrines made you confident that every single person that the Father has given to the Son will be raised up on the last day. And therefore, we have a glorious gospel to proclaim to ourselves for our own edification and sanctification, and a glorious gospel to proclaim to a lost world whose only hope is the grace of God found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that true of us? Do we believe that? Now, I could go on with other essential aspects of Reformed theology, but... In short, are we a Reformed church? In other words, do we believe and glory and exult in the fact that God is a sovereign God and that He is a God of grace? Because that is ultimately what Reformed theology is all about. It's about declaring and worshiping God as He has revealed Himself to us in Scripture. Do we believe that salvation from beginning to end is of the Lord, and that the work of salvation glorifies the God of grace. If we do EBC, it will affect who we are. It will have tangible results in our lives. If we are cold, if we lack zeal for the lost, if we are unloving and uncommitted, and if we have no desire to see sinners saved, and the church being built up in love, and all of this to the praise of God's glorious grace then we have no right to call ourselves a Reformed church. And so the question is, are we a Reformed church? Third word, Baptist. That is, we hold to what are referred to as Baptist distinctives. We believe in a regenerate church membership. We believe in that the ordinances are for God's covenant people alone, and that those covenant people are the very people that have been united to Christ (coughs) By faith. We believe that Christ alone is the head of the church, and that Christ's revealed mind with regard to the government of the church is that a church shall be governed by elders who are under shepherds of the great shepherd. That there shall be no entity that has authority over the spiritual and governmental affairs of a local church, whether that be parachurch organizations, ecclesiastical authorities, or the civil government. EBC, does that describe? who we are. Do you understand the importance of those distinctness? Do you understand that you're a Baptist and what that means? Fourth word, church. We say we are a church. Are we a church? We believe that the church is the bride and body of Christ. That Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And so if Christ loved the church... So should we. We believe that the church is of central importance in God's redemptive purposes and that the end goal of biblical missions is to result in the planting and establishment of biblical churches. We believe that there is no such thing as a churchless Christianity and that every believer ought to covenant themselves to a local body of believers and commit themselves to her well-being and advancement. Does this describe you? Do you love the church? Are you committed to her? Are you keeping your covenant promises that we made to one another? Are we being a biblical church? Now, these four words are critical. Evangelical, Reformed, Baptist, and Church. If Emmanuel Baptist Church is going to be a biblically healthy church, a God-honoring church, these four words must be true of us, not just on a document, but true of us in our hearts. It must be really an accurate representation of who we are. It must show itself in our hearts, in our convictions, and in our actions. But there is something that must be true of us if we're going to be a healthy church that is even more foundational than these four words. It goes back to Article 1 of our Constitution. Article 1 reads as follows. The name of this church shall be Emmanuel Baptist Church. And so the name of our church reveals something that must be at the very core and foundation of our church if we are to be a healthy church that is pleasing to God. And I'm sure you probably know where I'm going with this at this point. What does the, word, what does the name Emmanuel mean? We know from Matthew 1:23, which is a quotation of the prophecy given in Isaiah 7.14, that Emmanuel means God with us. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so at the most basic and foundational level, the most important aspect of any church is is that the church has fellowship or communion with God. Now I'll repeat that again because it's, it's very important. At the most basic and foundational level, the most important aspect of any church is that the church has fellowship or communion with God. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul, and your strength. Now this love is not an abstract or disassociated type of love. When God commands husbands to love their wives, it implies that there must be fellowship between husband and wife. When God commands us to love one another, it implies that we must have fellowship with one another. In the same way when God commands us to love Him, it implies that we must have fellowship or communion with Him. In the book of Revelation, there were seven letters written, and each letter is addressed to a specific historical church, but each letter is applied to all churches in every age. In each of those letters, the phrase is used, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. In other words, you who read Revelation today, if you have an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, In the first of those letters, Jesus addressed the church of Ephesus. In that letter, of course, there is much good that is said about Ephesus. It says that this church is doctrinally sound, which is very impressive given the context that the church had been attacked by false teaching, and yet the church withstood the test. It appears that the church is engaged in good works, in the proclamation of the gospel, and it even appears that many in the church have suffered persecution because of their allegiance to Christ and they have not turned away from their profession. It it really is remarkable the commendations that this church receives. From all outward appearances, it would appear that this church is is a thriving and healthy local church. That this church is a light set on a hill. But but of course we know that Christ, in that letter, threatens, threatens to remove their lampstand. In this letter. Now, why was it that he threatened to do that to such a seemingly faithful church? Well, we read in verse 4 of chapter 2 in Revelation the following But I have this against you, that you, uh, yet you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember therefore where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless. Do you repent? And so it was because they abandoned their first love. They had abandoned the very heart of what Christianity is all about. Well, if you would at this time, time, turn with me to another book from the pen of the Apostle John to dig into this idea of fellowship with God a little more. If you would, turn with me to the first epistle of John, chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 4 of that chapter. so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to You now thanking You for Your Holy Word and thanking You that it is through Your Holy Word that we have heard the Gospel concerning your Son, Jesus Christ. And that as a result of your amazing grace, you have granted us faith and repentance and thus powerfully and wonderfully brought us into fellowship with yourself and with your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, our finite minds and our sin-clouded hearts fail us when we seek to appreciate how blessed we are to be in fellowship with you. Father, give us grace, that through the means of grace, that is the preaching and hearing of the Word of God, that You would draw us into a nearer relationship with You. And this to Your glory and our good as individuals and as a church. And we ask this in the, in the name of Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to focus today on that short statement by John where he says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. Now, what is Christianity all about at the end of the day? J.R. Packer writes, a Christian is one who has God as his Father. I think that's a pretty good definition of what a Christian is. A Christian is one who has God as his Father. Christianity can be defined as the story of God reconciling Himself to sinners and thereby entering into an everlasting fellowship with them. In Ephesians 2, we read that those who are without God are without hope. The hope offered in the message of Christianity is that the God of heaven and earth actually enters into relationship with the believer. Remember what we sang earlier in, our, in one of our hymns. Ponder anew. What the Almighty can do if with His love He befriend them. Brothers and sisters, that's it right there. That's, that's Christianity in a nutshell. That, that's the beginning of Christianity. That's the hope that we offer to the world. If God be for you, who can be against you? We offer the world fellowship with God when we preach the gospel. That's the very beginning of Christianity. Secondly, not only is Fellowship with God, the very beginning point of Christianity. Fellowship with God is what defines and animates the Christian life. What is the Christian life? Christian life is fellowship with God. Every single aspect of the Christian life is all about fellowship with God. It is the very substance of Christianity. John 17, 3, we read, And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To be a Christian means that you are, you are one who was once dead spiritually, but now you are alive. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. John 3, 3 says, Unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. And so when we put these truths together, we see clearly that to be a Christian means you are alive, that you are alive spiritually and that spiritual life is fellowship with the triune God. You see that. That's, that's the very substance of Christianity. It is to be made spiritually alive. And what is spiritual life? It's fellowship with God. That's what spiritual life is. Thirdly, the end goal of Christianity is fellowship with With God. The whole redemptive plan of God is to restore and improve upon what was lost in the fall. And what was lost in the fall? Well, we looked at that last week briefly. What was lost in the fall primarily was fellowship with God. And so the whole scope of redemption has one primary goal that God would dwell with his people. And we see this worked out through the entire meta-narrative of Scripture, spanning from God establishing fellowship with the patriarchs, then dwelling with Israel in the tabernacle and later in the temple, to, to God dwelling on earth in the person of Jesus, who is Emmanuel, to God now dwelling with His people who make up the church, and to the consummation of all things where God will dwell in perfect and unhindered fellowship with His people for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the end goal of Christianity. Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's Christianity, brothers and sisters. That's heaven. Fellowship with God is heaven. And so it is clear to see that the beginning of Christianity is God reconciling Himself to us and establishing fellowship with the sinner. And the very substance of Christianity is fellowship with God, and the end goal of Christianity is eternal, perfect, and uninterrupted fellowship with God. Now, with that in mind, do you see the greatness of the Ephesian Church's sin in Revelation 2? They had lost the very heart of what their identity and purpose as a church was. The identity as a church, our, our identity as a church is to be a body of believers who have fellowship with God. The purpose of a church is to grow in this fellowship with God. So we at Emmanuel Baptist Church are to have one great aim. We are to pursue fellowship with God. That is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian church. So now that we've established, I hope, the importance of fellowship or communion with God, let us discuss Uh, for, for a while, the very nature of this fellowship or the very nature of this communion with God. And I want to consider the nature of our communion with God under three headings. First, our personal relationship with God. Secondly, a partaking in the life of God. And thirdly, a partnership in the work of God. So first, a personal relationship with God. We've already already noted that to be a Christian means that we have fellowship or a personal relationship with God. And it would do us well to remember how it is that we have come into this fellowship with God. So first I want to consider with you the doctrine of reconciliation. A few weeks ago, Pastor John preached to us from Ephesians 2, where we saw that by nature we are children of wrath. In other words, because of our sinful opposition to God, we were enemies of God and thus estranged from God. John Owen writes, Because of sin, no man in his natural state has fellowship with God. God is light and we are darkness. What communion has light with darkness? God is life, we are dead. God is love, we are enmity. So what agreement can there be between God and man? Men in such a condition do not have Christ, and so they are without hope and without God in the world. They are alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. Two cannot walk together unless they agree with each other. Whilst there is this great distance between God and man, there can be no walking together in fellowship or communion. Our first relationship with God was so lost by sin that there was no possibility in ourselves of any return to God. Last week, we talked about that, that chasm that exists between the thrice holy God and the sinner. And that this chasm cannot be spanned through anything that is inherent to the fallen nature of men. Augustus Toplady captures this, I think, well in his song Rock of Ages, particularly in stanzas 2 and 3, which read as follows Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior, for I die. And so we see that the great problem that sinful man has is that he cannot be made right with God on his own. And we must be in a right relationship with God. And yet there is nothing we can do to make that happen. And and worse than that, in our sinful state, we have no desire to be made right with God. We are set against God and set against His way of reconciliation. And so man in his arrogance and ignorance and wickedness Thinks that he can somehow be made right with God by putting God in the place of a debtor who owes us for our perceived good works as we have defined them. So we are so utterly lost without the grace of God. We are entirely dependent upon God to move toward us if we would be reconciled. And yet that is exactly what the gospel message is all about. It's about... God who reconciles us to Himself. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17-21 through reads as follows. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... And so we see that what God has done in Christ Jesus is to make it possible for sinful men to have fellowship with himself. Our problem was a sin problem. Our sin had to be addressed. And it was addressed in the sacrificial death of Christ, where our sin is imputed to Christ. And God's holy justice was satisfied, satisfied against us because our sin was paid for in the death of Christ. Further, to have fellowship with God, we must be holy as He is holy. And so, as a result of the imputed righteousness of Christ, we have been declared righteous by God, and He now relates to us as if we were perfectly righteous. The Scripture tells us that God was well pleased with His Son. And so because of our union with Christ by faith, God is now well pleased with us. This means if you have repented of your sins, and placed your faith in Christ, you are now reconciled to God, and thus have fellowship with Him. If you are a Christian here this morning, my prayer is that you would thank God for His grace, and that you have a renewed zeal for fellowship with God. God has pursued you. God has reconciled you to Himself. Thank God for that, and pursue fellowship with your God. If you are not a Christian, I, along with Paul, implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Your only hope is that of 2 Corinthians 5.21, that that truth, those truths will be applied to you, that your sins will be imputed to Christ and His righteousness imputed to you. This is the result of union with Christ. And the only way to be united to Christ is by faith. If you have never trusted Christ, I urge you to do so today. Place your faith in Christ and you will be reconciled to God. Now, we have seen that reconciliation is at the very heart of our fellowship with God. This reconciliation is manifested throughout Scripture in the change of relationship between you and God. To be a Christian is to go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. It is to go from being a stranger to God to being a child of God. It is to go from being a hater of God to being one who loves God. Now once you have been reconciled to God, it means that you now have a personal relationship with God. You are now a child and friend of God and thus you want to have fellowship with Him. But this raises an obvious question, I think, for us. And that is, so, as Christians we've been reconciled to God. We have a desire to fellowship with this God. But the question is this, how do we have this fellowship with God? Now that, that can be something that's somewhat hard for us to understand because we realize that God is a spirit, that God is invisible. We can't see Him. We can't sit down and talk with Him in the same way we can sit down and talk with one another. So how do we commune or fellowship with God? Well, we commune with God by faith. That is the instrument by which we lay hold of God in communion. Faith is the instrument by which we communicate with God. And faith is the instrument by which we receive God's communications to us. You see, I'll repeat that, just make sure you call what I'm saying. We, commun- we commune with God by faith. It is by faith that we communicate to God. And it is by faith that we receive God's communications to us. <coughs> in particular, It is through what we call the means of grace where we communicate with God and God communicates to us. And these means of grace must, of course, be attended to by faith. Now, for time's sake, I I just want to mention a couple of those means. The first is the Bible. What is the Bible? Now, that's a simple question, but in reality, it is a profound question. We confess and believe that the Bible is the very Word of God. Not just the Word about God, but in fact the very Word of God. God speaks to us through His Word, which is not a dead Word or merely an historical Word, but is in fact a living Word. Brothers and sisters, I would that you would come to realize the very depth and beauty and the spiritual nature of what you hold in your hands when you take the Bible up to read When we read the Bible, God himself is in fact communicating and fellowshipping with us if we are Christians. You understand that. When you have your Bible reading time, that is fellowship with God. It's not just checking something off the list. It's fellowshipping with the triune God. You see, the Bible comes alive to us if we are Christians who have fellowship with him. Prior to our, our conversion, the Bible was a dead book to us. Those of you who were converted later on can testify to the difference between reading the Bible pre-conversion and post-conversion. I'm sure many of you all yeah, have noticed that, especially if you were saved a little bit later on. Before you were a Christian, you read the Bible, you had no idea what it was talking about. It was like reading concrete. It was dead. But once you became a Christian, all of a sudden the book became alive. And God began to show you things from His Word. He began to fellowship with you in His Word. So what made the difference? Well, Jesus put it this way. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And what is eternal life? Fellowship with God. That's the difference. For the Christian, the Holy Spirit illuminates the inspired text, and in so doing, we have communion with our God. And so, brothers and sisters, I urge you, approach the Bible as the living Word of God, which when read in faith as a means by which God will fellowship with us, He will fellowship with you. Further, understand this. John Bunyan once wrote, Either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And this is true enough, but we must also realize that that not only will sin keep you from reading it, it will keep you from fellowshipping with God when you do read it. If you read in a cold and dead way with no love for God, no desire to fellowship with God, don't be surprised when your Bible reading is lifeless. But if you come to the reading of the Bible in faith and in love and in desire to meet your God, then remember the words of 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. What no eye has seen nor ear heard For the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. God will show you great things in His Word. Primarily, God will reveal Himself to you in His Word. You see that. So when we read the Bible, we are seeking to fellowship with God. And if we do that by faith, God in His grace will fellowship with us and reveal His very self to us in the reading of His Word. Second means of grace, prayer. This is a means of grace whereby through faith we have fellowship with God. I preached on this last week and we've been exploring prayer in our Wednesday night prayer meetings, but it is critical, brothers and sisters, that if we would have fellowship with God that we would be a praying people. And what is prayer? Well, last week we defined prayer. We defined it as talking with God. And last week we made the statement that Praying is as natural to spiritual life as breathing is to natural life. Christians who have fellowship with God spend much time in prayer. Now, because I addressed this last week, I'm not going to spend much time here, but what I want to do is just call you to examine yourself. Are you seeking fellowship with God in prayer? Do you love God, Will so therefore spend time with Him in prayer? It has been rightly said that men are generally esteemed by the company they keep. Do you tarry long in the presence of God? Remember, bad company corrupts good morals. But the opposite is also true. Good company improves our morals, right? Your life, your conduct, your growth and grace, or lack thereof, will be the evidence of your prayer life. If you tarry long in the presence of God, you will grow in grace. If you don't, then you will struggle in your sanctification. Now, I want to move on to the second point, partaking in the life of God. Now, the second aspect of the nature of this communion I want to address with you is that fellowship with God is a partaking in the life of God. At the beginning of this year, in our prayer meeting, we were going through a a little book by Henry Skugel entitled, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And that title really stuck with me. Really, the title was worth the price of the book, for my my soul. soul. So in, in that book, Henry was writing to a younger man, explaining to him the nature of true religion. And really, you could boil down the nature of true religion to say that true religion is to have the very life of God communicated to our souls. That's what true religion is. And since that time, I've been reading different Puritan authors, and I began to notice that this theme of partaking in the life of God was a very common theme for them. Our forefathers in the faith talked about this all the time. But in the 21st century, you don't hear much of this kind of language. of partaking in the life of God. Earlier, I quoted John Owen And Owen quoted from Ephesians 4.18 which says that those who are unconverted are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God. So one of the aspects that separates believers and unbelievers is that unbelievers are alienated from the life of God and believers partake in the life of God. So this partaking in the life of God is essential to being a Christian this is so important for us to understand. Notice with me in our text, if you would, 1 John 1, verse 2. It says that the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life. Now, what is the life being mentioned in these verses? Well, it is quite clearly speaking of Christ. Colossians 3, 4 says the following, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. In John 14, Jesus says that He is the way, the truth, and the life. In John 11, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so, God is life. Now, what is the opposite of life? Death, right? And what is death? Well, death is separation. Physical death is the separation of the body and the soul. But spiritual death is separation from God. Eternal death is separation from God for eternity. That's what death is. And so if death is defined as not having fellowship with God who is life, then life is defined as having fellowship with the very one who is life itself. You see that. That's what life is. Life is having fellowship with the one who is life. Death is not having fellowship with the one who is life. So what is meant when we say that fellowship with God is a partaking in the life of God? Well, one word that I think describes fellowship helpfully is the word share. John Owen writes, Now communion is the mutual sharing of of those good things which delight all those in that fellowship. And so we've looked at how in our personal relationship with God, we share with Him our time, our love, and our devotion. But dear ones, it should delight your souls to know that God has much more to share with us than we have to share with Him. You see, in our fellowship with God, He shares or communicates His very life to us. Another way to put that is, he communicates or shares his very nature to us. Earlier, I made the statement that bad company corrupts our morals, and therefore, good company improves our morals. I think second, uh, in, in the book of Second Kings, chapter seventeen, verse fifteen, there's a classic example of this. There, of course, it says that they, that is Israel, despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave. They went after false idols, and what happened? They became false. And so we see the the effect of idolatry there, right? They became like what they worshipped. So they worshipped a false idol. They became false. Brothers and sisters, this this is true as well for the Christian. As we fellowship with God by faith through the means of grace, God communicates His very nature to us. In other words, one of the great realities of our fellowship with God is that, he, that, is that He conforms us into His image. Remember, we talked about how what was lost in the fall was relationship with God, right? We also know that uh, in the fall, what was greatly marred and damaged by the fall was the image of God and man. Because of our sin, we no longer image God properly. Well, through our fellowship with God as a result of our salvation that image is being progressively restored until it will be restored and approved upon in our glorification. You see that? That's what God is doing in salvation. In our fellowship with God, He is communicating to us His very nature, thereby making us more like Himself. Partaking in the life of God is the doctrine of sanctification. It is the doctrine of being conformed to the image of Christ. Through our fellowship with God, we are being made more like God. Now, how is it that we become more like God? Or to put it in a different way, in what ways are we made to be more like God? Because, let me just break it to you. If you've never been told before, you will never be God. You will never become God. That's not what Christianity teaches. We'll never become gods or many gods When we say that we partake in the life of God, God, what we mean is that God communicates to us those attributes which theologians call the communicable attributes of God. Now if you're not familiar with that language, what it means is that the attributes of God are often divided into two categories. One category being the incommunicable attributes. And those, of course, are truths about God that are are true of God and God alone. Such as, God is self-existent. God is infinite. God is simple. God is immutable. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. These are truths that are only true of God and will never be true of any other being ever. These are only true of God. However, there are certain truths that describe who God is that God does communicate to His people. Attributes such as love, goodness, mercy, justice, compassion, righteousness, knowledge, etc., As we fellowship with God by faith in the means of grace, God communicates His communicable attributes to us. He communicates to us His very nature. He shares with us His very life. Brothers and sisters, this is good news for us if we're Christians. We believe in the doctrine of progressive sanctification. We believe that God will progressively make us more and more like Himself. And that's good news if you're married. Your spouse will become more like Christ if they're a Christian. That's good. It's good news for the church. We will become more and more like Christ if we are in Christ. That's good news. This means that we will be more and more enabled to put off the old man and put on the new man. And so we see that this partaking of the life of God or sanctification is an aspect of our fellowship with God. It follows then that the more we pursue fellowship with God, the more we will be sanctified and vice versa. So the more we pursue fellowship with God, as we fellowship with God, we're sanctified. And as we're sanctified, what do we desire? To fellowship with God. So would you partake in the life of God? Then pursue this by participating in the means of grace by faith. Third aspect of this nature of the nature of our communion with God is that we enter into a partnership in the work of God. Paul says that we are fellow workers with God. We are laboring alongside of God to see the church build up in love. Now I want to quickly mention three ways in which we partner in the work of God, and then mention one benefit that results from this aspect of our fellowship with God. First, gospel advancement. God is at work building His church through the advancement of the gospel. Beloved, you and I are fellow workers with God in that enterprise. Through this church's gospel ministries, your financial support, and your prayers, we are partnering with God in the ministry of reconciliation. And what a privilege that is, that we who were once enemies of God now partner with God in the very ministry of reconciliation. Think of the Apostle Paul. He was once an enemy of God, persecuting the church, and then God made him a partner in the work of reconciliation. Secondly, God is at work in sanctifying His people, or as we have seen, communicating His very nature to His people. Beloved, we believe that the work of sanctification is what we call a synergistic work. That is, we believe that sanctification is something that is accomplished as God works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We co- we cooperate with God in our own sanctification, and so this ought to have an impact on the way in which we view our personal growth in grace. God's will for your life is your sanctification. Are we approaching our sanctification as a means by which we fellowship with God? Did you catch what I said? As we pursue our own growth in grace, we're partnering. We're partnering with God, and therefore, fellowshiping with God in that enterprise. And so, as you pursue growing in grace, you do so alongside of God. You are a fellow worker with God in that, and the result of that is what you're sanctified, which causes what greater desire to fellowship with God. Third, good works. We partner with God in the doing of good works. Last week we saw that God made a covenant to do what? To do His people good. That's who God is. He is a good God who does good. He does good unto all men and especially unto the household of faith. We likewise are to do good unto all men and especially unto the household of faith. And so when we engage in good works, we are both fellowshipping with God as His co-workers, but we are also partaking in the very life of God. And so are you approaching your good works as a means by which you can fellowship with God? When you go about doing good works, you're fellowshipping with God. That might change the way we approach doing good works, right? The very act of doing a good work, you're doing it as a co-worker, a co-laborer with God. Finally, we know in life there's a closeness of fellowship that results when we partner with another to accomplish any goal or mission. Whether that be a business partner or with our spouses as we seek to build a God-honoring home. This partnering together in a work draws us closer together. It knits our hearts together. And we all know that to be true. If you ever work closely with somebody, it draws you together. It knits your heart together as you pursue that that mutual goal. So it is when we partner with God. As we go about being busy about our Father's business, let us make sure we realize that the proper way to engage in the Father's business is to see it as a means by which we fellowship with our loving Father, who has graciously included us in His work and desires to fellowship with us as we work with and for Him. See that? It gives us purpose and meaning in life. As we go about doing the Father's business, we're doing it with the Father. We're doing it with the Triune God. And God fellowships with us in the process. And let us remember that we will hear from our Master on the last day what? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest prepared for you. So doing good things, doing good works, being about the the Father's business is not a means by which we try to to earn God's favor. We already have God's favor by the ministry of reconciliation. It's a means by which we fellowship with our loving Father. Now, I've got a few more major points, but I Time has escaped me, so I will summarize these two points very briefly and bring this to a close. I think Pastor John and Pastor Thomas can sympathize or empathize with me um, when I say I didn't have time this week to write a short sermon. (laughs) That's true. If you want shorter sermons, make sure your pastors have more time to study (laughs) because otherwise you're going to have long sermons. We'll look back quickly at our text, First John 1. <clears throat> and notice in verse 3. John uses the plural pronoun our when describing this fellowship with God. Now, it is true that we maintain this, that we maintain that a critical aspect of, of Christianity is that God saves individuals. And so there is an individual fellowship with God. I cannot fellowship with God by proxy. I personally have to have fellowship with God. You can't fellowship with God for me and I can't fellowship with God for you. However, we must also realize that we are saved into fellowship with God in the context of the people of God. God saves individuals, yes, but He saves those individuals to make them part of His people, plural. And so the Apostle John says, our fellowship is with God. And so we we see this very practically worked out in our our corporate prayers as a church. What what pronouns do we use when we pray together in, in, in a corporate setting? We use pronouns such as we and us and our, right? Brothers and sisters, you who are my fellow saints and members of the household of God, we have fellowship with God. It's very tempting, I think, sometimes at times to, to think of this, this fellowship, this partaking in the life of God as an individual reality. And it is. But it's also a corporate reality. So, and so what does that mean? Well, it means that my covenant duty to you is to stir you up to pursue fellowship with your God. And your covenant duty to me, to me is to, to do What? To stir me up into greater and greater fellowship with my God. We are to pursue fellowship with God together. We're to strive together to fellowship with our God. And so it's not just an individual affair, it is, it is a whole church endeavor. Lastly, if you would, look at verse 4 of 1 John 1. Here John writes. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, brothers and sisters, it is no secret that fellowship with God is the very source of our joy. Our joy is made complete when we do what? When we fellowship with God. Psalm 1611 states, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Heaven can be described in a simple phrase. It will be perfect fellowship with God forever. That's what heaven is. We have and here's the good news, brothers and sisters we have entered into that fellowship now. We enjoy it now. Yes, in a limited way, but we enjoy that fellowship now. And we will enjoy, enjoy it to, a, to the fullest extent in heaven. Forever. But what is it that limits and interrupts our enjoyment and our fellowship with God now? sin. It's desiring the things of the world over the things of God. May we be brought to understand to a greater degree the wickedness of our sin. Sin at its very root is what? It's desiring other things greater than having fellowship with God. That's what sin is. It's saying, I would rather do X, Y, or Z than fellowship with my God. It's a great affront to the Holy God. It's a great affront when a Christian does it. A Christian who has been reconciled to God, who has been made a partaker in the very life of God. When we sin, it is a great affront to God. And so, we may, so may we learn that, that every aspect of our life, even the most mundane aspects, are to be experienced as fellowship with God. John Piper wrote a little poem called The Calvinist. And one of the lines in that poem stuck with me when I, when I first heard it. Um, and that line is very simple. It says, God in every taste. when is the last time that you really understand that eating a meal was fellowship with God? That the very food that you eat is a gift from your loving Father. Everything you do in this life is meant to be a means by which you fellowship with God. When you you draw a breath of air, in whose air are you breathing? God's. Who gave it to you? God. It's a good God who loves you and He's communicating good things to you. You are to experience everything in life as a means by which you fellowship with God. God should be on your mind always, constantly. In everything you do, God should be there. See that. That's what it means to partake in the very life of God. That's what it means to have fellowship with God. It's not just, quote, in, in spiritual things, Bible reading and prayer, although we, we are to fellowship with God in those ways. But all of life is to be fellowship with God. Every aspect of life. But brothers and sisters, is it not true that we impoverish ourselves because of how little we seek fellowship with God? Our joy comes from what? Fellowship with God. When we neglect seeking fellowship with God, what does it do? It impoverishes our own souls. And so if you would not be impoverished, if you would be full of joy, do what? Pursue God. Pursue fellowship with Him. May this be our great aim to pursue together. And I believe if we do that, that we will be a church that Christ is pleased with. That that He is pleased to fellowship with. Now, in closing, I just want to make uh, two, two points real quick. First, that the only way to the Father is through the Son, Jesus Christ. We've been talking about fellowship with God. The only way to have fellowship with God is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have time to elaborate on this, but this is true both in our initial entering into fellowship with God, and it is true in our ongoing fellowship with God. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Come to God through Christ. And enjoy Him forever. And secondly, I want to close with a question. Are we a church that desires fellowship with our God or have we lost our first love? May it be said of us that we love God and that this is evidenced by our fellowship with Him. Let's pray. Father, how sweet it is to to be able to address you in those terms. As J.I. J. I. Packer said, a Christian is one who has God as his father. So Lord, I, I thank you that you are our father, that you have adopted us into your family, that you have called us your friends, and that you have done this through the person and the work of your son Jesus Christ. Father, may you impress upon us To a greater degree just how blessed we are. And may we desire with more fervor, with more zeal, with more consistency to fellowship with you. May we stir one another up to seek you out in fellowship. Father, forgive us for our coldness towards you. Give us hearts that desire you above all else. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you would, please stand. And I believe we're singing hymn number 350. Yes, Hym, hymn 350. How sweet and awful is the place.